0: Just writing down what I think might be a good title for the podcast, Uh, designing
1: tools for creative expression. Yeah,
2: it's a reasonable title, yeah.
1: (laughs) Welcome to the Future of Coding. I'm Ivan Reese. There's a small handful of people that I've been requested again and again to interview on Future of Coding podcast. Jennifer Jacobs is one of those people. Her work on dynamic brushes in particular and parametric drawing in general occupies a major intersection between disciplines and provides insights that we can all apply to our own work. This interview touches on childhood education, programming tools for both non programmers and expert programmers, tangible interfaces, wearable and embodied computation, aesthetics, the relationship between academia and industry. Means of evaluating the efficacy of projects, geometric encodings of first-order logic, symbolic representations, whether Scratch could exist outside MIT, and more. Jennifer does a wonderful job articulating the nature of her own work, but also the works of her collaborators, peers, and influences, so that we come away with a great understanding for the broader spaces in which her research fits. Jennifer is already an important figure in our future of coding field, and I am very excited to follow her career and see all the places the impacts of her work will be felt. You'll notice right away that Steve is sitting in the interviewer chair this time. This is the first of a handful of episodes that he recorded in 2019 but didn't release. I'm planning to edit and release them throughout 2020, so you'll hear a bit more of Steve yet. The show notes for this episode are full of links to all the various projects and collaborators and inspirations that Jennifer references in the interview, along with a video of her demoing Para at the Adobe Max 2014 conference. You can find those show notes at futureofcoding.org slash episodes 48. There's also a full transcript if you'd prefer to read this interview rather than listen to it. One final note before the interview starts, as the host of this podcast and the steward of our community, I want to say something in my official capacity. Black Lives Matter. The consequences of racism in the U.S., here where I am in Canada, and around the world permeate every facet of life and society. It will take a constant effort over many lifetimes to achieve justice, and all of us can play a role in making that happen. There are many ways we technologists can be deliberate in our own work to be sure we are empowering the people who need it most. Right now, I'm just going to look at one small piece, our community. Over the past six months, we've had a number of deep, probing discussions about the need for greater diversity in our membership, in the guests that appear on this podcast, and in computing broadly. One outcome of those discussions has been our code of conduct, which I'd like to read a few sentences from. One of many principles held by the community is that computing currently reflects the interests of a narrow minority of people. A directed effort is needed to broaden the accessibility of computing and amplify the influence of historically underrepresented people in shaping its future. The tools for thought we want to build aren't just to help us do more thinking about our tools. We're trying to make tools to help people solve real problems in the world. That means we need to be able to talk about these problems. We also need to be able to recognize and discuss problems within our own cultures, like the lack of diversity. Those are just words. They are necessary, but not sufficient. I've received a number of suggestions for concrete actions we can take as a community and that I can take as the community's steward to make this a more welcoming and inclusive place. I'm doing my best to put them all into effect And I'm excited to share more of that work with you when it is ready. Like accessibility, a focus on justice benefits not just the people who are underrepresented, but everyone. So if you haven't yet reflected on how to make your own work embody the values of justice and inclusion, or moving power from those who have too much to those who don't, I implore you to do that. Finally, if there are things you would like to see me do or changes you'd like to see in our community to make it a more empowering space for black and brown people in particular, I would be grateful to hear from you.
0: Welcome, Jennifer.
2: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm very excited for this conversation. And uh, in particular, I think a few... Uh, uh, my longtime listeners are excited, too, because uh, you have the honor of being requested. Not all of my guests were requested, but you were.
2: Oh, that's always nice.
0: <laughs> so I thought maybe we'd start with your background. Um, I know you've worked at a number of research labs that would be familiar to people in our community. You've worked at the Media Lab, and it sounds like in two different groups at the Media Lab. Is that right?
2: Yes. High low Tech and Lifelong Kindergarten.
0: So yeah, well, um, I, I, I think most of us are pretty familiar with the Lifelong Kindergarten because it's Mitch Resnick's group and it's the group that made Scratch. Mm -hmm. But I haven't heard of this, the Hilo Tech group. What's that?
2: Yeah, Hilo Tech is a group that was founded by Leah Beakley. um, And Leah is probably best known for uh, being the creator of the LilyPad Arduino. Oh, yeah. Which is a version of the original Arduino, but fundamentally redesigned to support... E-textile based electronics as opposed to more traditional electronics. So rather than breadboarding, um, you connect to the lily pad with conductive thread, and there's a whole set of components that go with it that also are are connected by sewing and conductive thread. The lily pad is kind of a something I, I knew about before I was interested in the Media Lab, but really a, a seminal example of how Redesigning an existing piece of technology enables not just a different type of application for that technology, but also really broadens participation to a totally different group of people. And in this case, it was people who enjoy sewing or working with textiles. So Hilo Tech was a group that was really founded around this notion of integrating emerging or highly technical platforms like electronics, computational design, and coding. With established or traditional, or sometimes what are considered like low forms of making in terms of arts and crafts, fine art, traditional craftsmanship, but also arts and crafts in the sense that people think of that as more of an approachable or hobbyist or accessible form of making. So the group was all structured around uh, different ways of supporting both communities and different types of practices in combining these different modes of making in different materials. So there was a lot of work in the group being done around combining electronics and papercraft, and this is being done by Ji Chi. And she now has a company called Chibitronics that produces these electronic stickers, or uh, papercraft and electronics kits. Also Dave Mellis, who was one of the original Arduino team. Did a lot of work in the group to help people make their own consumer electronics, so radios, computer mice, speakers, and then his most complex electronic product that you could build yourself is a DIY cell phone. There was also a lot of work that extended the e-textiles platform or the, the LilyPad platforms. Emily Level in the group did a lot of work around. Supporting community engagement and kind of creating a, a community platform and sharing platform for the Lilypad called Lily Pond. And she also did some work in building different versions of the Lilypad that were simpler and easier to get started with. Hannah Perner Wilson was also in the group. she's a rock star. All, all these people are rock stars, but she really took the integration of craft and electronics really far by combining her thesis was this work called "A Kid of No Parts," which was basically looking at all the ways you could repurpose materials that were not traditionally thought of as electronic materials into platforms for building electronics and building sensors. And so she did a lot of knitted resistive sensors that could be then integrated into clothing. She did work with conductive paints to create painted speakers on found materials. She's also one of the people I respect the most in terms of dissemination and documentation, where everything she did is very carefully documented and presented online. And if you're all interested in craft-based electronics, Hannah is really the master in that area, in addition to the work that Leah did. But Leah really brought this amazing group of people together. And then I was lucky enough to be able to join it for my master's. And that was really where I first got excited about this idea of combining code as a design tool, and then as a design tool for making physical objects by integrating it with digital fabrication. And so Leah was really the person who inspired me to start looking at the ways in which we can use computer programming to build really complex forms and objects and then turn those things into Real things by using 3D printing or laser cutting or computer controlled milling. So, yeah, that's a quick overview of what Hilotech does. But it's no longer a research group at the Media Lab, but we still maintain an active community independently. And we actually have meetups biannually. And we're actually having one this summer in Kentucky. So, really excited about that.
0: Oh, wow. And it's just for people who are part of the group, or is it open to the public?
2: No, it's still kind of an internal element. So the original members of the group meet up and share our research and share our work. We've kind of all spread out across the world at this point. I don't know what this says about the type of work that I'm interested in doing, but often it's something that is at odds with a lot of like institutions. And so the, the Media Lab itself was... I, I think there's a lot of really amazing things about the Media Lab. There were aspects of Hilotech that weren't always understood or supported there. And I think, you know, the, the fact that Hilotech is not a research group there anymore is something that's acknowledged as a loss. But it's also difficult to have non traditional engineering communities in what are often pretty traditional or rigid engineering communities. And I think Hilotech was an example of that. So, It still exists in terms of the work that we are doing as individuals and Leah is doing, but is no longer a a research group at MIT, unfortunately.
0: So I I thought the name, I didn't quite get it until you were just explaining it now, high, low tech. Mm -hmm. There's this like saying, uh, or this idea that high tech or technology is just things that didn't exist when you were born. I think today's definition of high tech is things that didn't exist when you were born that were like likely made in California. That's like, I think, an approximate definition for what high tech is. I think what's kind of interesting about the high, low tech group is that it's kind of like trying to take things that were made after you were born, but make them as usable things that you grew up with.
2: Yeah, a, a bunch of it is thinking about ways in which we can make different approaches to making in different media and material for making more approachable or more inviting or more relevant to different groups of people. And often that's groups of people that traditionally have been excluded or viewed as not relevant to them. And so in some ways that's lowering barriers to entry and making things easier. Although, as I know you're very aware of and your audience is very aware of, what it means to make something easier is not a simple notion. There's a lot to unpack there. But it's also often just this notion of, uh, I would say, what are the expressive opportunities that come with reframing a form of making along the traditions of another form of making? So in traditional circuit design, the trace is primarily viewed through a notion and like the, the trace on the circuit board. You should be careful. Trace can mean something different in programming. The, the actual circuits themselves are primarily viewed purely from a functional and efficiency perspective. So is it thick enough to support the necessary electrical properties and does it connect the necessary components? But if you translate that to the trace is also something that you're embroidering with conductive thread or you're drawing with conductive ink, then it's both a means to transmit electricity and have a functioning circuit but it also becomes a decorative or an aesthetic element and that's something that comes out of traditions of drawing and embroidery and sewing where functional aspects are also things that contribute to the visual properties the beauty of a, of a piece and and that's something that I think everyone in Hilo Tech felt was very powerful and very meaningful. So it's an opportunity to engage people who maybe have an interest in drawing or have an interest in sewing or in craft, in seeing themselves as producers of technology, which is very important, but it's also an opportunity to re-envision what technology might look like or what these materials might mean and how they might be used to people who kind of have a closed notion of what a circuit is or what applications computer programming is used for. And so one of the really interesting experiences I had in the group is when I was first doing computational design workshops with processing and I was having people write code to make designs for lamps, for example. I would work with people who had never programmed before and this was their first introduction to programming and they would be interested in that. But I'd also work with experienced programmers and software developers who would say, oh, I had no idea that code could be used to make beautiful forms. I feel like both of those are powerful outcomes.
0: So I find myself wondering how you identify, and I have these two myths in my head that I think could apply. One is the myth of um, the guy who brought fire from the gods,
2: Oh, Prometheus! <laughs> Prometheus, yes. So, so
0: you could see yourself as Prometheus, as being like a technologist who's bringing technology to artists, or you could see yourself as more like Jack and Jack and the Beanstalk, of like someone who goes up to the gods and steals their their stuff and then like comes back down. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you? So do you identify more as a technologist who's democratizing technology, or as an artist who's trying to like claim technology for themselves?
2: Yeah, um, I would say. There are elements of both of those that are things that I think are important and interested in supporting. But I I wouldn't say I, I view myself precisely through either of those lenses. So, so one thing that I continually struggle with is the, the language that I use to describe what I'm doing and, and who I'm doing it for. And a lot of this comes up in talking about artists versus programmers. The reality is that while not not all artists program, it's also not an accurate distinction to say that there are programmers and then there are artists. Much of the work I've done has been inspired by artists who are some of the best programmers that I also have ever met, um, and also some of the best software developers and application developers that I've ever met. So I would see it more as trying to explain to artists why programming is so great or help make it easier for artists to program because artists do very difficult things all the time and learn very difficult things all the time, but more thinking from the perspective of what are domains of art that could really benefit from some of the powerful affordances of programming? Because I believe that frankly at this point, everything can benefit from programming if it's presented in the right context, but that we might rethink how we develop programming environments or programming languages to support these specific domains. And that's less about, I would say, just making it easier for some artists to use programming and more about thinking a little bit about changing the idea of what programming might be or changing the notion of how it might connect to different forms of expression. And at the end of the day, this comes down to my own experience and the things that motivated me personally. I, I often talk informally about my work as being a, <laughs> a series of productive failures in trying to mash symbolic programming and drawing together. Um, <laughs> and because there are these two forms of creation that I feel are incredibly powerful personally, but have fundamentally different properties in many respects. And I can talk more about what those are (laughs) at length, Uh, but a a lot of the work that I've done has been trying to approach different ways of how can we get these two things to be integrated more closely together? How can we make the experience of programming more like drawing, or how can we make the process of programming reflect some of the key forms of expression of drawing? And that's translated out into a bunch of different domains beyond drawing, I think it's more of a notion of taking these two forms of expression that are really powerful and thinking about different representations, different interfaces, even different forms of teaching and facilitation that allow us to combine them, as opposed to introducing this audience, like artists who are previously unaware of this medium programming to it and, and helping them to get started. That's definitely a part of it, but not the whole story. From the other perspective, I think you use the metaphor of Jack and the beanstalk. Like, uh, I, I, I think like there's another angle of this work or a question that I ask myself, which is, what if at all value does my work provide for more established programming communities like software development? and that's only been a question that I've been focusing on relatively recently and I think it's not the primary focus of my work but there are a lot of things that I've been looking at in terms of how artists program or how artists work and this is generalizing to some extent but but often true but they often engage in an exploratory working practice where they don't start with a clearly defined problem and say okay now I just need to break this up into smaller problems and solve it they have a Process where they're open to mistakes, they're open to variation, and they kind of explore as they make. Victor has talked about this in a lot of his writing as well. That's something that's true for artists and often goes against very traditional notions of what good programming practice should be or what good software development should be. But I also think that software developers work in an exploratory manner. And other people have written about this in many cases. And I think that. It's impossible to predict and plan every aspect of a programming project before you execute on it. There are always surprises and unexpected things and experimentation. So I I think there are things we can learn from how more messy forms of creation or more messy creative practitioners use programming that might help us make better programming tools for people like software developers or other communities. But I haven't explored that direction in my work as much.
0: Mm. um just to clarify when i was talking about the jack and the beanstalk metaphor the the metaphor was artists are more normal people and then the giants are the programmers and so you're like stealing some of the programmer magic and bring it down to the artists
2: Yeah yeah I'm sorry. i sorry i kind of <laughs>
0: you flipped the metaphor as like artists were the, were the people well, cuz you you could do it either way Yeah
2: yeah i mean there is so much magic in programming but i don't um
0: I, I guess just to give you examples of people that come to mind, like uh, Seymour Papert to me seems like mm-hmm. someone who was like a, really a mathematician who was trying to like bring mathematics to people who didn't like mathematics, mm-hmm. as opposed to some like an artist who wanted to use mathematics in their work. You know, he, he was very much, I, I felt like a democratizer when yeah. there are other people who are like scrappy artists who just take whatever they can and, and embed it in their work.
2: I mean, I, I do think there are this there's this problematic notion, and I've heard this addressed on your podcast before. But this problematic notion of certain types of people being equipped to be good programmers and other types of people being less equipped, or a, an notion of of exceptionalism in certain forms of programming, that's unfortunate and, and not surprising. But I do like to try to break down that idea a little bit that. While programming is an incredibly powerful form of expression, while abstraction has value in so many different forms of design and so many different forms of expression, while symbolic mathematics has has value in so many different forms of expression, programming is too vast to say that there is one personality type or one intelligence type that really aligns with it. And if you don't have that, you're never going to truly be effective in it. That's definitely a belief I had about myself getting started in programming, and it was totally by accident that I got started programming. But I see it now with some of the people that I work with who, for example, a lot of artists who use visual programming languages, like Grasshopper, which is the node-based data flow language for Rhino, which is a very powerful programming language. And I'll have people tell me, oh, I don't know how to program. I just use Grasshopper. it's like... Why is that not programming? And where did you get that idea? Because (laughs) like it is a visual programming language, you know, and there are people but I think fewer and fewer who don't consider visual programming programming, but
0: um, mm, definitely not uh, from where I'm saying fewer and fewer. <laughs>
2: right, right, right. Okay. Well, I've had the good fortune of being in a very supportive environment in lifelong kindergarten around this, I guess. And I'm still learning a bit about how the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, You're like, in mecca yeah. and you're like, Oh, yeah. everyone believes yeah. in the same God as me.
2: <laughs> Everything's wonderful. <Yeah. laughs> um, but uh, so, so I do think it's important to dispel those ideas and, dispel notions of also like where programming is relevant. I don't know how much oxygen I even want to give to that space, but needless to say, I focus more on not so much, you know, is this programming or is this not programming and more, what are different people trying to make? How can the ideas or the approaches embedded in programming support them? What are the barriers and how can we help more people make things by building different interfaces or environments or or tools? that get around some of those barriers. And there's so many questions and challenges in there that at the end of the day, you know, there's somebody who looks at what I do and say, yeah, but you don't have conditionals in this language, so it's not really a programming language. I'm like, well, um, (laughs) there will be other other issues where we we need conditionals, but I want that to be driven by the people I'm trying to support or the work that I'm trying to support, not by the fact that there's the notion that to be a real programming, you need conditionals, you know? So...
0: (laughs) I feel like I want to just keep keep talking about this sort of stuff, but um, I, I think it probably might help our audience to talk more concretely about some work you've done.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> but I, actually, before uh, we do that, um, I want to just ask you a question, which I might end up cutting, but I'm curious to know the answer. Sure. I really enjoyed the who's who of Hilo Tech and like, all the interesting work happening there. And I was wondering if you would do the same for the Lifeline Kindergarten group.
2: I can tell you who was present when I was in Lifeline Kindergarten, because it's... Since grown. Um, so the group is led by Mitch Resnick, who I'm sure many people are familiar with, but he was a student of Seymour Papert and one of the main designers and really the continued architect of the Scratch programming language. Although Scratch is really a community effort, it's come together from the contributions of a lot of different people. While I was there, there were a few other grad students that really influenced me. So Rika Rose Roque, who is now faculty at CU Boulder in the Information Science Department, I think, she was doing a lot of work around facilitation in computational learning, specifically related to families. So how do you help not just kids learn to program, but how do you engage people in computational learning in the context of a family? And, and the cool thing about that work was that She is an immigrant, comes from an immigrant family and is focusing on working with other immigrant families by and large as a means to think about what are some of the constraints that different communities of people have when engaging in different types of learning and how can we have this be a process not just to help people develop new skills, but also something that engages parents and their children together in working with a new technology Rick Rose's work really stands out to me because facilitation is such an important aspect of how we think about people learning programming. Often the work in my domain that gets a lot of focus in research is what can an environment do? What can a technology do to make learning easier? But there's also so many important questions about what it looks like to facilitate a learning environment, what the interactions look like between the people who are quote unquote experts and the people who are non-experts. And Rick Rose is one of the people who's really doing deep work in that space. Simon Deskupta was another grad student who's in the group when I was there. He is doing the really interesting work of combining data science and programming for young people. Just like, Seymour Papert and Mitch said that, you know, kids are, are programmers and we should build programming languages for them. Mindu has kind of extended that to say that kids can be data scientists. And he's looked at ways to use Scratch as a way to help kids do programming with data around their own data. So the Scratch community has a lot of opportunities in that space where kids can get data about how many, you know, the the way people have viewed their projects, the people they've worked with in the community. And so he's done a lot of really interesting research in that area. And I think that there are some scratch extensions that have come out of it that specifically are geared towards programming with external data. So, oh man, Um, there were a lot of other people in the group when I was there. Eric Rosenbaum was there. Um, We overlapped, he and Jay Silver did the Makey Makey. and, And Eric has done a lot of really great work around computational music creation that's continuing to be embedded in scratch um one of the great things is that a lot of students in the group are also members of the scratch team and will come back in various ways and continue to contribute to scratch i think eric is actually now working as a member of the scratch team natalie rusk was there as a research scientist i believe she's still there
0: yeah i've heard her name before
2: Yeah, Natalie is another big component of Scratch and also has done really thoughtful work in the space of motivation and understanding what drives people to engage in difficult learning tasks or, or learning challenges. Then there's the whole Scratch team, which one of the things I feel really fortunate about being in lifelong kindergarten was not just interacting with the grad students, but the fact that there's this basically small company of people who are maintaining and designing and doing the engineering for the Scratch community and Scratch programming environment. And they're such a wonderful group of people, but also have such a wealth of knowledge around design, around working with people, around teaching. And a lot of the work that I've done was directly influenced by talking with those people about how they thought about designing visual programming languages or how they thought about developing documentation. And I think it's something that, is maybe often not present in academia, where you're maybe working in a simplified or more less, less ecologically valid context and less aware of what people in the quote-unquote real world are doing. There's too many people in lifelong kindergarten to talk about, but those are a few people that really influenced me.
0: I think for people who aren't in academia, academia sometimes seems overwhelmingly large but when you meet a few people who are in academia and you just like ask like who are your friends <laughs> like who are the people that you've worked with and are interesting and they just like list 10 people and you're like oh i, I can learn about those 10 people
2: yeah yeah there's too many people to talk about but the other nice thing about both Hilotech and Lifelong Kindergarten is everyone I've encountered in those groups has been a very kind person as well. And so if people are interested and, and they look into, you know, Simon, do a Rose's work, I encourage them to reach out because they're all very kind and, and interested in sharing and, and connecting with people.
0: Cool. OK, so now let's get into some of that more concrete stuff of um, mm-hmm. yeah. the work you've done. Mm-hmm. There was one talk of yours I saw you have like two different projects like one project then you did some uh, testing and evaluation then you then you did a second project.
2: Mm-hmm. So I think you're probably thinking of Para and Dynamic brushes? Yes, I'm yes. guessing? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, yeah. I forgot
0: the name Para. I I knew the second one Dynamic brushes I'm familiar with.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's not a great name, but we needed a name. <laughs> so
0: well, I yeah. like the name brushes a lot. Actually. I, I have trouble with the word procedural, the phrase procedural mm-hmm. art, because it's like procedures are just one way of describing.
2: Yeah. Things. Yeah. I have trouble with it too, but I haven't found a better word. So
0: <laughs> I guess like, I like maybe dynamic art or computational art, you know, something more abstract than procedural. Cause you know,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, I'm continuing to refine the language I use. I I, I chose procedural because it's one that both um, in the art community is used and also historically with regards to art made with computers and also, to some extent, art that is not made with a digital computer but arguably is computational-like. Instructional art, for example, um, Solowit is kind of the canonical example in that space.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. That there's this connection to instructional art even before computers, Or like giving like a, a recipe of instructions even before computers were around.
2: Yeah. Well, we can go way back into the history of all kind, like <laughs> all kinds of, of forms of algorithmic production that uh, existed before computers. Yeah.
0: Mm, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like you could. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, like uh, an architect could like you know explain to the bricklayers where they want the bricks to go.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure you've are familiar with Christopher Alexander's book, A Pattern Language, and all the work he's done. That's all about arguably abstraction in in form, in architecture, in structure. But you know, knitting, weaving are kind of the canonical <laughs> canonical examples of of algorithmic forms of making. It's interesting because. Not to go on on too much of a tangent, but (laughs) it's hard not to. Um, A lot of artists think about what they do algorithmically, even if they don't program, because artists are highly reflective in their process. They're very interested in what they make, but they're also very interested in how they make it. So, for example, Chantel Martin, who's an artist that I'm very inspired by and I've had a lot of conversations with her about her process and drawing. She creates these giant like large scale drawings, all improvisationally and all seemingly without a, a plan. But she talks about the fact that, oh, yeah, I, I understand this general structure of when I make a decision to vary the line, how long that I draw, the general distance between different elements of my drawing, you know, when I choose to create these different singularities or, or inner drawing, like exceptions. And she doesn't program, or she hadn't really when we were first talking. But she was thinking about her work very procedurally, and she was then very drawn to the notion of programming and since gone in to do work in this space, the idea not just that it would let her create different things, but that, oh, this might help me see the process that I use through a different lens, through a different representation.
0: Is she one of the artists that you commissioned to use your tools to try it out?
2: Not yet. Hopefully soon. <laughs> she's... she's uh, unsurprisingly really blown up recently Uh, not recently but yeah this is the problem of talking with really talented people is um, (laughs) they're very successful and then they have a lot of projects to do Um, we've talked about doing projects together and and hopefully eventually that will happen but she's also doing uh, a lot of work on her own right Uh, yeah she's she's very successful at this point in time which is great
0: so um, I liked in your presentation about these two projects, how you framed it that you were doing interdisciplinary systems engineering. Mm-hmm. There was this cool graphic that mm-hmm. like you started from like certain motivations, and anyways, so maybe you could walk us through the process.
2: It builds very much on the notion of user-centered design or other human-centered forms of design practice, where it is to start with an understanding of an existing domain and examining what people are doing in that domain, what are the opportunities and what are the challenges, and then starting to try and build tools and technologies that try to address some of those challenges. But the idea being that you're really starting first by trying to understand the practices of the people you're trying to support. And so in the case of artists, like I do a lot of work initially with observing artists at work in their studios, interviewing them, analyzing their work and kind of making hypotheses about how they might be doing certain things and then asking them about this and talking with them about it. And then trying to prototype tools that might align with some of the things they're trying to do. To start with Para, one of the things that I noticed really early on when doing workshops with with processing is that often people were coming from a background of using direct manipulation tools like Illustrator, And processing generates vector graphics, so it's in many ways really powerful to combine it with a tool like Illustrator. But there was this big disconnect, both moving between these different interfaces, symbolic textual programming and direct manipulation of vector graphics, but also these very different representations where you're using this imperative representation in processing where explicitly every transformation you're describing, whereas in... Uh, direct manipulation tool. It doesn't matter how many times you move something. All that matters is what the final position of that object is, for example. And so kind of seeing these tensions come out and thinking about, and then informing them through conversations with people about why they choose to use an imperative programming tool like processing or why an artist might choose instead to use a tool like Illustrator. And that really led into some of the early prototypes for Para, which is this, direct manipulation procedural art tool. And so I don't call it a programming tool because there's no symbolic code. There's no code that's displayed to the person using the system, but there are types of things that you can do with it, like describe constraints, have iterative variation um, between multiple objects that normally you would use a programming language to achieve these same relationships. And the development of Para, going back to this interdisciplinary systems engineering idea, the challenge in building the system is, as you're building it, you're making all the, you know, everyone who's, who's worked in software development knows this. Is you're making all these individual decisions at any point that could be really impactful or are just necessary to get the thing up and running. And the, the task is to understand at some point how to inform those decisions. And so the approach that we've taken is to actually do iterative testing of the system with professional artists using it. So as soon as the system is in any shape for anybody to use it, which is often like way too early for my comfort, but (laughs) probably too late in, in some ways, I should probably continue to try to do it earlier. We'll have professional artists use it and try to make work with it and observe them using it and actively modify it in response to some of the challenges that they observe. With Para, we had um, a professional painter use the system for two weeks while we looked at what she was doing. This is the painter, Kim Smith, who's also at the Media Lab. And then revised elements of both the interface and also some aspects of the underlying representation in response to things that just didn't make any sense. So in some ways, the ways we were representing lists were really powerful from an abstract perspective. Notion in that like you create a list, and then really it was it was very simple. it was just a, an ordered collection of, of vector graphics, but not very useful from an artistic standpoint if you create this collection and you have no immediate functionality that comes out of it, so we, we added the ability when you create a list that it this is maybe getting too deep in the weeds, but that it automatically had some constraints on those objects imposed so that when you would start to manipulate them through direct manipulation, you would get useful changes across the collection of the entire objects. This is something that came directly out of working with this one artist and in the process of watching what she did with it. And that process is something that improves the tool itself and also helps us to understand more general notions of like, how does it actually apply to longer term use? Does it support the creation of different types of art as well as supporting kind of these interesting small interactions? at what point does it stop becoming interesting for the artist and and how do we need to think about different forms of expression that we should enable? And then also like really what are the limitations of the tool? So really towards the end of the second week, Kim started using Para to make more illustrative work in the system as opposed to abstract forms. So she was using the ability to automatically manipulate large collections of objects to create patterning in an illustration of an animal and some plants that was really interesting to see and was really exciting. But we also noticed right away that compared to some of the illustrations she had done, you know, with watercolor by hand, the fact that she was using vector graphics was a kind of a big constraint in terms of those forms of expression. And so that's where this like cycle kind of feeds back into building into the next project where you, you look at what people have done, it helps you improve the existing system, but it also points to these directions to new work and new systems. And so without doing the studies with para with with artists we wouldn't have thought more about well should we examine these assumptions we've made around vector graphics and direct manipulation of vector graphics as a as a way of supporting more expressive forms of procedural art for artists who work by hand and focus more on this idea of drawing and actually drawing with a pencil or drawing with a stylus and that's where dynamic brushes came from and that's not to say that i think that para was a dead end in fact it's Something that we're still working on, and that project was a collaboration with Joel Brandt and Radomir Mech, and also Sumit Goja. But Joel and Radomir are both research scientists at Adobe, and you know there are ideas from Para that are continuing to percolate through through Adobe in different forms. But it, it also sort of opened up new. New ideas or, or, or different directions that we might go, and, and that's kind of where dynamic brushes came from.
0: Yeah, before we continue on in the story, I uh, wanted to just talk a bit about um, Par. I think just just to give people a mental picture if something didn't come to mind. Uh, I think the tool looks a bit like Photoshop, like a normal graphics editor.
2: It actually looks more like Illustrator, but yeah, it's similar, yeah. yeah. It has a toolbar, it has a what appears to be a layers panel, and then a canvas, and a few other things, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. I just want to give people a bit of a mental image. And then the way I, I thought of it is, is, like you said, it's not a programming language, it's, it's first and foremost a tool like that, but then it seems kind of augmented with these cool computational constraints and and linkages, which I've seen actually a few tools start to incorporate. For example, Figma has this new like components, like master and instance ones, where you can change the master and all the instances will change too. So it seems like this tool is exploring that space.
2: Yeah, I I should say... um there's been work in the past that has some of these same elements. And a, a major frustration I have in, in research in general is that I feel like we're often discouraged from building on prior strong work as opposed to um, distinguishing our work as, as completely novel. But I, Para has new things in it and I would say is represents a different direction than some previous work, but... You know everything going back from Sketchpad <laughs> to Morphic to the work that Toby Shackman has done in Apparatus to the work that Rubiat Kazi has done with Kitty and then also obviously all of Brett's work in dynamic data visualizations. It's definitely built on a strong foundation of prior works. I would say that the things that maybe don't get focused on in Para as much that are important to me are how we tried to position those things with respect to the specific domain of visual art and illustration, and then also really how we evaluated it with artists in terms of looking at the types of work that it could enable and the ability to support both more abstract forms of procedural art, but also these more illustrative forms with animals and plants and so on. But yeah, it's built on this foundation and inspired by and hopefully contributes to this larger body of work that I think is really important. Oh, also, Sketch and Sketch is an important example in that space too. But yeah, this body of work that's looking at what are the ways in which we can express procedural relationships, programmatic relationships through direct manipulation. And there's so much exciting work that's been done in that space and so many difficult challenges to continue tackling.
0: So um, the list um, improvement you made that you went over, I thought that that sounded interesting. It sounded like before, when someone would make a list, it would just be a, a collection of items, but they wouldn't be linked at all, and then so you changed it, so when you put things in a list, they are automatically constrained to each other in some way?
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the, the first ideas we had was really just, what are powerful ideas from more conventional forms of programming that we can apply to the direct manipulation context and have them still represented? And the notion of a list generally is just something that can serve many applications, but in itself is specifying an order and a collection of data, but not specifying operations on that data necessarily. And although that is useful to have sort of bare bones lists off the bat, as we quickly observed when you're coming from the space of direct manipulation and also maybe not thinking about collections of artwork in that way, what's really powerful about Para is that you can define a relationship and then start to play with it by manipulating the shapes themselves, by manipulating the actual artwork. And you know, the, the powerful aspect of direct manipulation in general is that immediate feedback where you change something and immediately get a sense of how it changes everything else. Um, and so to have built-in constraints when you're applying lists so that when I apply a list to 10 objects and then drag the last object and it redistributes the objects, gives people immediately a sense of some of the potentials of using those types of relationships as opposed to they describe a list and really the structures there but but nothing happens immediately. There was a whole bunch of additional work in general we did in pair of thinking about oh what are these really complex types of procedural relationships you might create so we had something that looked a little bit like prototype inheritance in the system where you would have something that when you duplicated an object, it would maintain the same properties as its parent until you explicitly manipulated one of those properties and then it would have its own value for that. And that was very powerful, but you really had to have not only a deep understanding of where you might want to use that, but also it really upped the burden of how much complexity you had to manage in the system and and, and how we might even represent those relationships or represent that complexity. And so in the end, we settled on this simple set of procedural concepts, constraints, lists, and declarative duplication because it kind of hit this sweet spot of, of letting you do things you couldn't do in existing direct manipulation tools, but not increasing the complexity so much that we really had to... You know, like It's very rare that you would encounter a situation where you're creating a cyclic constraint in para, for example. You can, and the system will alert you if you're doing that, but um, because you could do so much just with simple object-to-object constraints or do a, sim- a single constraint and map it from one list to another list, a lot of that complexity was unnecessary. I would say going forward, one of the biggest challenges we have in thinking about direct manipulation as a format for expressing programmatic-like or procedural relationships is how do we help people debug these things? Because even if you can create the relationships and manipulate them through direct manipulation, if you can't understand them, if you can't unpack them, if you can't evaluate them when they're functioning incorrectly, then it's not going to be any easier than other forms of programming. And to be fair, this is already an issue we have with regular direct manipulation systems where they don't necessarily always perform super well when you have really complicated compositions or large collections of artwork. Like the layers panel is not <laughs> the greatest panel for manipulating an artwork with assets on the order of the thousands or, or even the hundreds. And there's people doing work to address this, but I would say like if and when I continue to do work in the space of direct manipulation based procedural or, or computational art tools, debugging and understanding structure is really a, an area of interest for me.
0: So, one of the questions that I still have about this list improvement you made, did you simplify lists from this generic structure to have like default behavior, to have to have it like standard behavior or was it just that you gave us a certain default that could be undone if they wanted it to be.
2: No, we just gave them a default. You can always remove, in Para, you can remove any constraint that's defined. We didn't actually take away any functionality. We more chose what, for the context of this particular study, was an effective default.
0: I remember, yeah, learnable programming does a great job of explaining why good defaults are just like so important. But There's such a simple way to improve the learnability of a tool.
2: Yeah, I would say this is something that often gets not as much... I'm I'm glad it was highlighted in that essay. I don't think it gets enough appreciation in general, like something that's often lost on people who who don't understand the power of Scratch is not understanding some ideas of really, really powerful but simple starting points they provided people, how they introduce different concepts. Micro-worlds is kind of a a really important idea in this space.
0: But then I would say that I think there are a few examples of places where Scratch... Goes kind of too far, and they don't let you mm. unpack like um mm-hmm. like the, the glide command. I have a lot of trouble with mm. because interesting, and I I, and I I like you know tell my told my students you know to never use it to you know, and, and it's harder initially because they have to learn uh, they have to like point their object in the way they want it to go and then move in a in a loop. So it's like three blocks instead of one, but it's so much more powerful to understand the primitives in that way than it is to gl- glide. Is is so limited. um And so, yeah. Anyways,
2: yeah. No, it's that's interesting to hear. I mean, I think I think this is the general tension you get when you have a pretty diverse audience of people using a a given tool. I know one of the challenges that the Scratch team is always dealing with is how can we support people who are doing really complex work in the system without making it so that when completely new people encounter it, they might be encountering types of code or types of blocks that make it really difficult for them to do simple things. And and there's always a, a push and pull in terms of how you resolve those challenges. My interest as a researcher working in the space of designing creative systems is finding good resolutions to some of those challenges, but moreover, trying to do a better job of documenting and explaining how those decisions were made and why they were made. Um, I feel like this is the uh, a struggle in, in writing about any software-based project is there's a lot of design knowledge and information that gets kind of glossed over because the process of building a software tool is made up of so many important small design decisions that really converge to make the tool what it is but it's very difficult to communicate those decisions in a short and understandable manner to an outside audience. There are other things that happened in Para that I haven't been able to unpack and talk about, um, and we're definitely returning to the system to continue to work on it in other areas. But yeah, this is an ongoing challenge in the the work that I do. Um,
0: Let's let's talk about dynamic brushes now. And 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 maybe you could pick up the story where you left off how the evaluation and feedback you got from Para led to the conception of Daniel Brushes?
2: Yeah, so it was sort of a convergence of factors. One was really getting to the limitations of vector graphics where they're very useful for some forms of expression. But if you're someone who draws or paints and many of the people that I was working with fit that description, there is so much expressive power you get just from the movement of different people's hands just any anybody draws differently than anybody else no matter their level of experience if you look at people who have a lot of experience in a form of manual draftsmanship let's say like painting or drawing they have spent years refining how they move their hand to draw i spoke at length with my former undergrad advisor michael salter who's a illustrator and studio artist and he talked about how the opportunity of drawing is that the fastest way for him to express an idea in his head was the length of his arm and that he really refined this ability to draw and express you know ideas that came into his head very quickly and so Wait, sorry. Uh, what about the length of his arm? Oh, it is sort of a I, I should find the exact quote um, <laughs> but but that the the you know the fastest transmission of an idea from from his head to reality was basically this mapping between his head to the extension of his arm. I'm misquoting him slightly there, so apologies, Michael. yeah,
1: um <laughs> we're
0: we're like someone who's good at talking, it might be the shortest path is from their, their head to their tongue. Or
2: something. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's this common notion that has come up, the speed of drawing being something that's both powerful in terms of getting ideas out there, but also the thing that affects what it looks like. So Chantelle talks about how she tries to draw without thinking very quickly, because if she thinks about it too much, it'll change her style. And um, it's almost like a it has elements of like meditation in it, I think, to, to some extent.
0: I think Seymour Papert would really like this kind of conversation because it's all it's somatic, <laughs> somatic knowledge, body mm-hmm. knowledge.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There's definitely uh, this notion of yeah embodied or, or tacit knowledge. I think uh, that idea was really what led to dynamic brushes of thinking, okay, let's take the same approach we took with Para, but reframe it around this notion of drawing by hand. So you're not using vector graphics, but what you're doing is drawing with a pencil, or in this case, like a digital stylus. And how can we use that as a starting point? There's any number of directions that might have taken, but then I was also having a lot of conversations with artists who regularly use programming in their work And I focused on talking with artists who also did these works that had what to me seemed like very hand-drawn qualities to them. So Eric Natsky and Emily Gobiel and Theo Watson. There is a common pattern there where they were building basically their own software that let them draw, but then procedurally manipulated aspects of their drawing. So they were drawing with a stylus. And then Eric wrote software where it would take the stylus input and, and manipulate the line. This is simplifying it, but manipulate the line by sampling from some other external data, like a JPEG image. And so if you look at his work, some of his work from this time, it has these really sweeping forms, but then this really complex variation on the the weight of the stroke and the color of the stroke, It's coming from this functionality of software he wrote. And the same thing with Emily and Theo had a really interesting process where Emily comes from both a background in in programming, but also in illustration and puppet design. And Theo comes from a background that's more rooted in software development and computer science. And they have this wonderful collaborative process where Theo would kind of write these ad hoc scripts in open frameworks, which is a tool he was one of the co-founders of where it would do something really simple, but really playful, like take the line that Emily was drawing and then also take microphone input and modulate some aspects of the line geometry based on the amplitude of the mic input, for example, or take some form she had drawn and then automatically do a circle packing algorithm within it and fill it with, with circles. And Emily would use these and then generate ideas of, oh, what if we did this instead? And, and Theo would script up another tool as a variation and they kind of work back and forth and build these ad hoc drawing tools. It's like, oh, that, that's amazing. That's such a powerful process. Can we think about the idea of a programming language for drawing as something that is actually a programming language for building your own drawing tools that take your drawing input and transform it in some way that the artist dictates or describes? And that's really where Dynamic Brushes, that was kind of the start of that project, is that idea.
0: I just have to say, you're, you're a true computer scientist. You're like, you're starting with drawings. And you're like, oh, well, this is nice, but like, how do I make these drawings a little bit more dynamic and you're like okay like I'm gonna make a tool for artists to make dynamic drawings okay that's a good idea oh wait you know what I need to make a tool that artists can use to make their own tools you know (laughs) yeah yeah. the next project is gonna be you're gonna make make a generic programming language that allow people to make tools that will allow other people yeah it's just you're never gonna stop yeah
2: no it's it's turtles all the way down (laughs) yeah I, I think I think it's a natural process when you're goal is to think about, how can I help people be expressive with programming? That's basically what programming enables you to do, is build your own, tools is not always the right term, but your own subroutines, forms of automation. Often artists I've talked to who use programming extensively describe it as, oh, programming lets you build a medium. And so it's useful to take other aspects of programming. Like, oh, can we just help people automate this one thing that everyone needs to do? That's powerful and that's valuable. But I think the more I think about helping different people be expressive, you really want to <laughs> give them the full access to the true power of programming, which is constructing your own software, basically.
0: I like the way you're doing it in almost like this DSL mm-hmm. kind of way. Yeah. It reminds me of like the K Steps project where you you have like a main interface that's easier to use and you have like a specialized interface to just specialize the first interface and then maybe an interface to specialize the specializer.
2: Yeah, there's all kinds of problems that come out of that. And I'm happy to, to talk about those at length. But I think in general, I'm, I'm a big proponent of this notion of yeah, domain-specific languages and dynamic brushes. Although it brought a lot of challenges, I think the, the idea of, okay, let's build a language around this notion of managing drawing data with a visual programming language and then letting people work with those tools in a more traditional direct manipulation drawing environment. So the data from your stylus is now going to be represented as, you know, absolute position over time or its relative position over time or the change in force over time. And I, once again, this was a collaboration with Joel and Radimir and, and then also Mitch was hugely influential in this work. We borrowed a lot from work in the space of um, computational music manipulation, where they're using very simple waveforms to modulate sound or generate sound. And we then just simply applied them to modulating the line that was being drawn, the position of it, the geometry of it, also the stylistic properties of it. So you can have a brush in dynamic brushes that follows the stylus X and Y position, but modulates the geometric scale relative to the origin along a square wave. So you get this geometric variation, but then the position is totally determined by how the different person is drawing. And so it's this incredibly simple program from one viewpoint. The program itself is very short. <laughs> it's not always a measure of simplicity in programming, but um, but then you give it to different artists and each person makes something different with it. Whereas in Para, although I liked Para a lot and I still love it a lot, a simple program, because it was using the, the same geometric primitives, There was a much higher threshold for different people generating different things off the bat. And so that's probably the most powerful thing about dynamic brushes is that it just brings in this form of data that's highly expressive and you can do a lot with simple programs. You can also do very complex things. And so one of the key goals of the system was let's not just see what happens when we treat drawing as an input and let people manipulate it, but let's enable people to create tools that they couldn't make with other that that aren't available in other drawing software like illustrator or photoshop where they can have things drawn that correspond with what they're drawing by hand but they can also have things being drawn automatically or independent of what they're drawing by hand and so i don't know how in detail you want me to go into the Programming representation.
0: <laughs> I do want you to to go into it because I think it's fascinating. I just want to draw a mental picture, and I'll do a quick sketch, and you can fill in some of the details. Yeah, yeah. So, dynamic brushes. The pictures I saw was you would have iPad and a computer screen, and on the computer screen, it looked a bit like Scratch. You had like blocks mm-hmm. that you could connect, mm-hmm. and then on the iPad, you were drawing, and uh, the thing you were coding on the the desktop screen was the brush. And so, as you change the brush on the desktop. And then you used your iPad pencil on the iPad, different things with like, you know, squares would come out of your pencil instead of just a line.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the basic idea was the desktop environment had a visual programming environment in it that gets compared both to Scratch a lot and it probably owes more to Scratch than anything else, but also gets compared a lot to node-based data flow programming like Max MSP or Grasshopper. And I would say it's, is actually what you're creating are um, state diagrams. So it's a state and constraints model, which.
0: State charts? Um,
2: yeah, yeah. We, we looked a lot at Steve Oney's interstate, interstate yeah. as a way of informing the design of this tool. So it's technically not the same thing as the way the data flow languages in Grasshopper work, but it looks similar in that transitions are event driven. It's similar in some ways to Max in that regard. Then the iPad environment looks kind of like a really simple version of a tool like procreate or some other tablet-based bitmap drawing environment but instead of having like a tool palette that is defined up front the tool palette is whatever programs that you create in the programming environment, and they're linked.
0: And you said bitmap. We're not doing vector
2: graphics anymore. No. and The the reason we did bitmap was really because we started earlier with dynamic brushes, testing it with artists, and we were working with people who had worked primarily in a digital painting scenario and they were used to bitmap tools, so they wanted opacity, they wanted the ability to feather the edges. You can do that with vector graphics, and there's a version of dynamic brushes that is completely vector, but we haven't return to that. But it was more just the audience that we were looking at. There's no reason it couldn't be a a vector tool necessarily, but we chose to align it with bitmap drawing because that corresponded with the types of people that started using the system early on.
0: Cool. So yeah, I think I interrupted you. You were going to talk about some of the programming model stuff, the interesting bits. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. It's so funny. I usually give this with some images behind me. So it's a useful practice to <laughs> describe it without images. So the kind of core, I find I, I guess I often design my languages around three <laughs> primary um Programming concepts or components, and so in Para it was constraints, lists, and declarative duplication, and in dynamic why three? Ah, it's like the magic number. I don't know. It's it's I guess arguably in dynamic brushes you could say it's four, um, but it's primarily so data bindings. So just m- declarative mappings between some input data. You know, most commonly the stylus, but then you also have the synthesized data, like function generators a sine wave. And then you also can import in external data. We also added like the ability to use mic input, um, the accelerometer of the tablet. So any data can be mapped to a brush property, and the properties are obvious things like position and color and opacity, but then also less obvious but very powerful things like geometric transformation, so rotation, scaling, And then you describe data bindings inside of states. So that's a second thing. And then this is basically whenever a state is active, the data bindings within it are active. And um, you can only have one state active at a time, which is, you know, traditional notion of of state machines. (laughs) And... uh, Transitions between states are driven by these event driven transitions that we predefined in the first version. So you have a limited set of events, kind of similar to Scratch, like stylus events when the stylus is down, when the stylus is up, or when a certain interval of time has elapsed, or when a certain interval of distance has been traversed. And then we're working on a new version which has a more expressive event. Definition structure so you can describe more arbitrary events or evaluate arbitrary conditions. Yeah, so states, bindings, transitions, and I guess the fourth thing would be then there is also a small set of actions, which are just very simple methods that are called once and they can be called once on any transition that occurs. For example, you can initialize a new stroke when a transition occurs, or you can start a timer, which is really useful for doing time-driven transitions. Or you can also call this action called spawn, which is the most powerful but maybe most complex aspect of the system, which basically lets one brush generate another brush or multiple instances of another brush. And so the reason we added spawning to the system was because of what I was talking about several minutes ago, where we wanted the ability for the artist to create brushes where multiple things were happening simultaneously. You had one input and multiple outputs, or you were drawing on the canvas, but had some automated things that would be drawn in response to what you were drawing. And so spawning basically lets one brush generate copies of itself, or brushes generate automatically that draw on a timer interval, as opposed to being driven by changes to the stylus input. The example we were really trying to build up to was this drip brush, where as you draw a line, drips automatically come off of the line and fall down across the canvas. But yeah, there's been other work we've done in that space. like You can generate really complex radial forms where you're just doing one input, and then you automatically have multiple radial branching forms coming out from that one input. It's a lot easier to show with videos. (laughs) In a prototype version, we added the ability to actually do recursion where a brush could spawn instances of itself. And then we had a termination condition based on the number of brushes that have been spawned. We didn't actually use that in the final version of the software because recursion can generate some tricky debugging scenarios. And so we're still, we're still working on refining that part of the system. But that's the overall idea.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know why. It just occurred to me that I came up with uh, a way to extend the level of abstraction here like in a, in, it probably has already occurred to you. you just take this but bring it into um, like a VR 3D world where instead of making brushes you're making like clay basically uh, it's like a clay making kit and so you can like make clay over here like you, you quote mix the clay programmatically with blocks and then you, go, you like walk over or maybe one person's mixing clay and the other person's like shaping the clay so it's like, it's like the same thing but for sculpting
2: yeah, that's interesting. I've talked with people about doing stuff in VR, yeah, more in a, in a 3D application. We chose 2D originally because I love 2D art. And also it's a lot of work to to, to build these systems and any any corners you can cut in terms of simplifying the, the things you can build is, is a good starting point. Um, but uh, yeah, we've talked about doing a 3D version of it. Um, actually really interested in applying it and we have done a little bit of experimenting in this space already to forms of so, so one thing one way of thinking about this is I kind of framed it in the lens of a tool development you're building your own tools but another way of thinking about it is reframing drawing within the space of interaction design so instead of actually making the artifact what you're doing is defining the interactions you want to have with the system that's going to then generate an artifact. That idea is something I was thinking about or kind of came to me from these conversations I've been having with um, the artist and engineer, Madeline Gannon, who is probably best known for the gestural robotics control she's done with these industrial-scale robot arms. But she's actually doing all this work from a standpoint of what are different ways in which we can think about digital fabrication, interaction and control, And what are the ways in which we might think about CAD, computer design, not as being this process of sitting in front of a computer and creating a design and then sending the machine to be fabricated, but more of this process that looks more like what happens when we make an object in a more traditional method, like she's really interested in on-body fabrication and clothing manufacturing, where you actually might design an object while you're working on a mannequin or actually working with the person themselves. And so she has this really powerful idea of, can we think about interacting with some autonomous agent, not as upfront we describe what it's going to do with the artifact. And then that's translated to tool paths and then the system executes it. But instead saying like, what are the class of interactions we might want to have, or what are the ways we want this autonomous agent to respond to us as we work? And let's put the designer in the position of describing those. And then being in the context of actually working with this you know, machine or autonomous system or agent to collaboratively, or I don't know if collaboration is the right word. Metaphors are important here. I'm not (laughs) sure I'm choosing the right ones, but to to finish the artifact. So I've been thinking more about dynamic brushes from the standpoint of what would it mean if we're describing not how a digital brush is performing, but how the head of a, a CNC machine or a 3D printer is moving in response to decisions we make in the moment of digital fabrication as opposed to ahead of time. It's maybe seems like a big jump, but we've already done a version of Dynamic Brushes where we connected it to a CNC machine and used it to create brushes that actually draw in large format on the CNC machine.
1: The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Replit. Normally, when I do a Replit sponsorship... I spend some time reflecting on the features of Replit that I am most personally excited by and try to write up something cohesive and organized so that I don't spend a bunch of time kind of bumbling and making an ass of myself. But today I'm actually going to do that um, because I wanted to relate an anecdote from earlier this decade. And it felt better to do that just off the cuff rather than writing something out. In 2016, uh, my wife and I, having just recently been married, decided to tour around Europe living out of our backpacks, as is sort of the typical thing that people from North America do when they get married. I spent a considerable amount of the trip trying to learn closure, because that was a language that I'd recently become quite infatuated with and hadn't yet cracked my knuckles and done a big project with it. So this felt like the right opportunity to do that, since I'd be spending a lot of time in hotels or riding on trains without much else to occupy me. The experience of setting up closure turned what would have been a very exciting point in my life where I get to dive into a new language, try a bunch of projects and make a bunch of cool things into several weeks of protracted misery. There were multiple different build tools And as somebody coming from outside the Java ecosystem, I had no idea what Palm meant or what Maven was. I had to spend a lot of time learning all of this terminology, installing all of these different tools and making configuration file after configuration file, trying to get it to work. And after weeks of just trying to get Clojure set up, I finally had something that let me actually build the project I was excited about which, for the real heads in the audience, was the first version of Hest. That early experience with Closure colored my impression of the language and the ecosystem in an irreparably harmed way, and I never ended up really embracing Clojure the way that I originally thought that I was going to, and I've since basically stopped using it entirely. So where does Replit come into this? On Replit, you can be up and writing Clojure in a matter of seconds. There's nothing to install. There's nothing to configure. You just tell Replit that you want to write Clojure and then you write Clojure. If I had had that in 2016, my relationship with Clojure may not have been adversarial right from the first time and I might still be writing Clojure because it's a beautiful language. It is a wonderful work of engineering, but for whatever reason, All of the design that has gone into it in terms of the language primitives and the way that the technical decisions are grounded in solid conceptual design work never manifested in the beginner experience. Replit did the work that the Clojure core team should have done. So this is my way of sincerely thanking Replit for creating something that solves a real problem for newcomers to programming And that's why I mean it when I say thanks to Replit for bringing us the future of coding.
0: I was thinking about how you said that you have like electronic circuits, but now they're also, they like have a dual purpose. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about um, the like... Part of what's great about gestures is the embodied knowledge that we have, but also it's just the joy of moving our hands in ways that aren't just twitching our fingertips.
2: Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Like
0: it's just more joyful to like move our whole arm, um, but like that's just our arm. Yeah. And so I was imagining mm-hmm. like one day it's going to be like you're just going to dance, and like the, the way you move your whole body is going to be uh, somehow mapped to some other. Create a form of expression that might be a physical object. Yeah. If you want it, you could design it so that you know, like the more you uh, bounce, like the I don't know, the, the shakier, uh, you know. You could. De-
2: mm-hmm.
0: I like the idea of allowing people to design their own interactions based on how they have embodied the thing they want to express.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm really excited by that too. I think this is also gets to the heart of like the, the the challenges I'm most interested in addressing right now, and so one of the powerful things about programming is you can create these arbitrary mappings between any input to any output you know within within reason but um and that was actually one of the really nice things that came out of doing these studies with artists with the dynamic brushes system is actually had this moment of observing this painter have that realization where he was working with the system early on he was saying i don't understand why you you know every drawing tool i've worked with you and i'm paraphrasing here the stylus position dictates the brush position like why would you ever not want to map stylus position to brush position and and then at one point he said oh oh okay actually like i can transform the stylus position in some ways or i can use it to dynamically control the speed of the brush in addition to where it's actually located or i can have it so that the position changes the color of the brush that's interesting, oh, that's totally arbitrary how I map these things. Oh, every tool that I've used, those relationships are arbitrary <laughs> in in the space of software and, like, and oh,
0: I can be a wizard. I don't have to like take physical pigment and like spread it around like with matter. yeah you know, like, I'm a wizard. I can have it do what I want
2: <laughs> so that was that was really cool to see because uh, yeah, I think that's one thing i'm I'm super excited about in helping people to create their own software and tools of programming is we can think differently about these relationships and these mappings, but it's also the hard thing is then there are all these wonderful things about when when you're getting to the space of mapping data from interactions that are tacit or embodied or gestural, there are all these understandings that people have about that, the way they move through space, the way they draw that, to do really powerful or or specific or precise things with them in a symbolic context, it can be very useful to understand them from a different perspective, from a more discrete perspective, from a more formal perspective. So artists think about, for example, the way they draw as a time-based act, many artists I've talked with, but that doesn't mean that they think about it in the way that dynamic brushes represents time with regards to drawing. That doesn't mean that they think about, you know, it takes me approximately 10 seconds to move this distance. And I want to have this behavior in my drawing execute on a certain time interval. There's a non-trivial process that goes between this embodied or tacit understanding of drawing as a time-based process to how can I symbolically manipulate that to do the thing that I want. Same goes for physics. And I think I'm always sensitive to the fact that on one hand, there's a tension there and there's a chance for trade-offs or there's a you know I, I don't think you can preserve everything you get from one way of knowing like a tacit way of knowing when you move into a symbolic or formal representation but I do think there's power and utility there so I I
0: Sorry, I just want to, this is something that I was going to bring up my, uh, myself in a few minutes. I'm glad we got here now. Um, what don't you think is possible preserving your, um, yeah, which which one can't you go into the other? Yeah, sorry, I, I just missed it.
2: I think it's both ways, right? Um, the, the,
0: you can't transmit from one to the other without losing something in the middle. They're, they're like...
2: yeah. Any, 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 tra- and this is maybe getting too abstract, but any translation is an exercise in in, in losing something, right? You know, um, no. there's value in it, but I guess uh, not
0: technically. You know, you could translate things losslessly.
2: Um. I, well, I, I would say, like, from the perspective of, I've been trying to write about this lately, and it's been very challenging. So I'm, I'm I want to choose my my words carefully here. Um, one way of thinking about it is, so, so earlier I talked about how drawing is this process of being a, uh, often speed and, and not thinking is an important element of drawing where you basically, artists train themselves to build up this physical intuition so that they're not explicitly analyzing everything that they're doing And instead reacting.
0: Like uh, people who play play sports.
2: And maybe, you know, I've also observed programmers and people have talked about this, where they've reached such a familiarity and level of skill with programming that what they do is is almost reactionary or intuitive in, in some senses when they're when they're developing some things. But I would say my experience with programming is in general, it's this process of analysis. Of taking an idea and breaking it into smaller achievable problems. And that is very different from this notion of reacting in the moment.
0: Mm. Oh, almost system one, system two, uh, the Kahn-
2: Kahneman's distinction. <laughs> um, me- yeah, maybe. I, 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 I want to be careful (laughs) like there there's been a lot of work in the psychology of psychology of programming and also psychology and 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 psychological work and theoretical work around um tacit and embodied forms of working and i i would say um my work could benefit by drawing more heavily on that (laughs) space although i I am really inspired by things like the textility of making or the reflective practitioner um, those works really drive how I think a lot about some forms of, of expression that I'm interested in supporting. Um, I recognize the tension in my own work between trying to combine something that is often a fundamentally tacit and embodied form of creation with something that is often most powerful as an analytical form of creation, which I think programming is in many respects, and that there are different pathways you can take in that process. The pathway I've taken is to try and select programming representations that preserve some really important expressive aspects of the passive form of creation, like drawing. But I also recognize that they're going to shift some of the things that people are doing in that space. So dynamic brushes I never have claimed that it's something where people can just automatically learn the programming language and start creating tools and drawing like they were before. No, like they spend time learning the language. They spend a lot of time authoring tools, which they wouldn't be doing necessarily with other systems. And there's more labor placed in that space of learning symbolic programming and writing and debugging the tools they're building and also understanding what are the trade-offs in that space. Another approach might be, to build a really expressive set of procedural drawing tools, give people the ability to tune some parameters of those tools, but don't have them invest in the actual process of writing the code itself. And and there would be a lot of benefit to that approach. And there have been things that people have done in that space. But I I think now I'm much more focused on this idea of, okay, recognizing these trade-offs, recognizing that you have to think about drawing numerically. You have to think about it Analytically, You have to think about it systematically. What's the way in which we can help people make that transition more easily? Most of the work we're doing with dynamic brushes right now is really around this idea of how can we show people representations of the drawing input they're using in ways that help them to understand why a tool is functioning the way that it is, why a state change occurs when it does, and help them make informed decisions about the process of programming Yeah, it's a trade off.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I I definitely see the the trade off of. um, I I I do a lot of thinking in in this area too, but I'm I'm gonna be a little bit less careful with my words. I'm just gonna like kind of talk around it uh, to evoke what I'm getting at, I guess. Um, I see on the one hand, there's things that humans already know, like we have a very embodied sense of gravity. We're not born with it, but I think over the first five years, like a Piaget kind of way, like we get it, you know, like, oh, okay, like I drop things, I expect them to fall. It's, a, it's a, like you feel in your body and you feel it and you expect it in objects you manipulate. But then it takes a long time and a lot of formal training to get someone to transfer that to a knowledge of physics, like an abstract knowledge of physics. There's like, it's, it's quite a quite a lot of education that has to go to teach that formally. And I, I guess maybe a better example, one that's kind of close to my heart is um, I was a logo kid. I was a math phobe who um, was exposed to logo uh, and I learned how to draw a circle. I kind of eventually intuited on my own, oh wait, if I just, you know, go like walk up a little bit and turn a little bit and do that 360 times, I, I got a circle. Then when I eventually went to calculus, it was just so easy to understand what a derivative was because I've walked I've like walked along curves before. And anyways, what I'm getting at is one way to put it is a uh, Alan Kay has uh, this critique of Scratch that you may have heard of.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I guess you haven't worked on Scratch, but I feel like you're maybe one of the better people I've had on the podcast who could defend it from Alan's criticism. That um, basically, there are certain human universals or things that humans are good at, like drawing and singing and dancing and playing. But then there are certain um, non human universals that are not more enlightened, but just they're also very desirable. But they don't come naturally. They require a certain kind of investment. Um, but then there are like these interesting ways to get humans from the universals, the things they already know and love, to and, and like transfer, like leverage that love and knowledge into a new, uh, more powerful but also harder domain. So, anyways, I'll, I'll let you take it from there.
2: Yeah, I mean that. That makes me think of, and maybe this is what you're drawing from, like Alan Kay's essay on, uh, I think it's a user interface, a personal view. I'm not sure if I'm getting that right, where he talks about this notion of how you can move between more concrete forms of understanding to more symbolic forms of understanding and symbolic knowledge versus visual knowledge. This is coming, I think, from Jerome Bruner's theories about different forms of knowledge, and I'm not representing it in its entirety. But this idea that you might be able to, yes, that like symbolic knowledge being this really powerful form of representation, but maybe less natural for people to understand, but visual and kinesthetic knowledge being more familiar and more natural, but that by working in the visual and kinesthetic domain, you can help scaffold the process of understanding and manipulating symbolic knowledge. I'm really excited by that idea. And I think it's something that I would say I need to do a better job with some of the systems that I, do and thinking about so much focus initially has been on how do we select an appropriate representation for a given domain with still the knowledge of there's there's going to be learning challenges or conceptual challenges here and what are the ways in which we support people in making connections or 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 moving to really understanding the symbolic domain when they're starting with a visual or kinesthetic form of manipulation and I I think there's a lot that I can do that just, you know, like not hiding information, showing information visually. There's also a lot of huge challenges. So one of the like very concrete challenges in dynamic brushes is we have people working in a geometric domain, 2D drawing. And then we have this type of data that is geometric. It has, has natural geometric properties, the stylus input in, in many ways. And we have these other data types that you can map them to geometric properties, and that's very powerful. But they're more abstract; they don't inherently have a geometric quality that aligns with the geometric properties of the 2D canvas. So, like a sine waveform, I can draw a sine waveform on the canvas, but that's also misleading in some respects because the dimensions of it are going to be arbitrary relative to my drawing. And and really, that data is it's also very powerful to understand that data more abstractly or or numerically. And so there's this idea of, okay, yes, I want to help people draw those connections. I also don't want to mislead them. I don't want them to have an incorrect intuition about how to think about this type of input and this data. Like, it would be a a problem if the painter got the idea that, oh, there are certain types of relationships I'm supposed to create with data in dynamic brushes and other types that I'm not supposed to create, you know? So I don't think I have answers to that, but it's a topic I'm really interested in. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, one of the big challenges I, I, I see in that is uh, the more programmatic of an interface you expose, the less um, constancy or repetitiveness they can expect. So, so the harder it is for them to build up those somatic intuitions that are so important. Part of what makes uh, allows artists to get really good with a paintbrush is that paintbrushes are, are pretty similar, uh, but you, you, you're allowing them to create all these new paintbrushes. So, I would expect or uh, the, one solution to that problem would be they spend a lot of time iterating on, on what paint brushes or what uh, you know, uh, dynamic brushes they want to make, and then they kind of maybe will leave it kind of like it is and then make a bunch of art and then the next series they 'd like modify the brushes again because uh, if you modify the brushes too much, it's, I'm, I could imagine that it 's hard to build up a certain intuition of like what di- different gestures actually accomplish.
2: Yeah, and that's the behavior that we've observed so far with people using the system is that we'll spend a lot of time in the programming environment, kind of experiment drawing, and then a lot of time in the drawing environment and really only making minor tweaks, if anything, to the brushes. But I'm not saying that's wrong. I also think that we're working hard to find ways to enable people to move more easily back and forth between the two spaces because there are ideas that emerge during the process of drawing that you want to be able to implement in in programming and to, to be able to translate to the programming environment. That's not always easy. So we've done really simple, obvious things like you can record some drawing input and loop it back through the system while you modify the code so you don't have to like experiment every time. You can Im- immediately see how your changes update the drawing. But there are there are bigger questions that I know have been explored by other people in other domains, but this idea of, Oh, do I ever want to be able to to do something in the drawing environment that actually describes or manipulates a relationship in the program? And Brett has done some really cool stuff in this space, but once again, you get into that area of how do I distinguish between what I could, what I could do that's possible versus what, makes sense and what has like a um um meaningful semantics, you know, like I love the idea of having people be able to draw a waveform in the drawing environment. And then, you know, that's 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 a, a great idea. You know, less clear if like I've I've talked about this a lot with um people on the scratch team around like how would you geometrically describe a conditional or not, <laughs> you know? <laughs> You could come up with an idea, and there might be some cases where it makes sense, but there might be a lot of other cases where it might not make sense. So, yeah, a, a lot of challenges <laughs> in this space.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that makes this very concrete for me, this um, idea of like, a, a standard interface versus a programmable interface, is um, 10 years ago, my dad got this like, whole new TV system, and it came with this touchscreen interface. And he could never turn on, let alone use this TV. And the newer interface, like the state of the art to, of today, is made by the same company, but it's a um, it's not a touchscreen anymore. It's like back to an old fashioned interface where you actually specify to the company what you want printed on the buttons, and they print it onto the buttons. So, uh, so it's like the same amount of programmatic programmability, but um, but once you've set it up, they print it uh, in a way that makes it much more like my dad can. Not only really can he turn on his TV now, but he doesn't have to look at the, uh, the the remote to to know where the buttons are.
2: Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, it, I think there's need for more work in the domain of of creativity support and systems research. I think looking at some more longitudinal impacts of of use patterns and learnability for some of the tools we build over time. Like I, I think there's in general this idea that people should learn a system really quickly or use it really quickly. And if they can, then it's a good system. And if they can't, then it's a not effective system. But that's not necessarily the right metric for how we think about how we might support people, you know, using, using software or using a, a programming language or a creative tool. And some of my favorite things come out of looking at what artists who have been using Photoshop and Illustrator for really a long time do with it, where they use the filters in ways that I had no idea that you could use them in those ways. And they'll call them hacks. They'll be like, oh, I use this hack. It's not really how it's supposed to be used, but I you know, get this effect by combining the blur filter with the... I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to remember the filters. I never never use them. <laughs> but, uh, and it, it's interesting because it's like, oh, it's like you could see that as like an unintended use or you could see that as like this is what happens when people use software of an extended period of time. They adapt it to their own applications and, and that's a really powerful and valuable thing. But it's so really reflected in how we present and evaluate systems from a research perspective and that it's a system we build over a year to six month period and we test it for Hopefully a while, and then we kind of understand what people can do with it in, in that time frame. Um, but, but not what people might do with it using it over a year or two years. There's definitely exceptions to this, but
0: I have a very funny, like, uh, I guess, illustration of this kind of dialectic. I've been having this like silly conversation with a stranger on Twitter. Mm-hmm. His position is that programming should be as intuitive as possible, and my position is that. It's not necessarily a bad thing if it requires a certain investment, but that investment pays off in like, you know, power down the road. Yeah. And so, so he sent me yesterday a video of a monkey, like, like an actual ape, using a touchscreen. He's like, see, like programming should be this intuitive that like, even a monkey can, can use it. And so I sent back a video, of, like a timeless video, of someone who didn't know how to play piano. At the end of the year, he could play like really intense piano. It's like, no, no, no this is what programming should be like. And I think it's a funny dichotomy of the two different views of like immediately usable versus like rewards investment.
2: Yeah, I I just I think I guess if you think of programming from the interface or environment perspective, yes, we should make things easy. With an important asterisk there, which is like easy without restricting the important forms of power expression that we we want to deliver. But if you think of programming as a way of thinking. It is almost like not relevant to think about, like, how do we make this way of thinking easy? Because it's more about, you know, we want to provide pathways into engaging this way of thinking, but you can't trivialize the the, the difficulty of learning abstraction. You know, I remember when I first really understood the concept of object-oriented programming, it's a powerful idea, and I don't think you want to say, well, there are things that are hard about object-oriented programming, let's choose a simpler idea that's more intuitive, it's more obvious to people, and you're diminishing the power of that idea, you know? And, and arguably, like, object-oriented programming is more aligned with how people might think about things in other programming models. But there's value in understanding and learning different ways of seeing the world, and programming offers that, and I don't want to diminish that. And also, the idea of what is intuitive, I use it a lot, so guilty of this. But but we don't really have a good grasp of, I think in many ways, things that are intuitive, because what's intuitive for one person could be totally different from what's intuitive to another person. And I you know, the the notion of dynamic brushes, we chose this representation for drawing, not because we thought, oh, this will be the most intuitive representation for drawing, because this is how people think about drawing, because every artist I talked to thought about drawing in a different way. You know, there were some similarities that we tried to recognize, but overall, the idea was, no, if I build a programming representation for how I think about drawing, it's not going to correspond with how this other person thinks about it. It's it's an impossible design challenge. So I think there are other principles we can involve in terms of what does this let people express? What does it limit them from expressing? And what are the reasonable scaffolds we can provide to helping them learn it? we want to think about things in terms of correspondence and how close the mental model of a, of a given audience is to a, a given representation, but that's not always feasible. And I would argue in programming it's often not feasible.
0: Oh uh, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad we, I don't know. I, I like, I like that answer a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, and that, I didn't know if that's what you were going to say. Um, I, I thought maybe you'd come out on the other side of like, no, 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 it has to be as, as easy and natural as possible.
2: So. Yeah, easy as possible, but no easier. <laughs> right? And I'm ripping off multiple people with that statement. But <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: so back to some of your work, I liked your discussion of the evaluation of it. You, you talked about how tricky it was. And I think it's kind of, it, it's similar to um, whenever you make a tool, uh, it, it's hard to evaluate a tool because you have to evaluate how people use a tool and what artifacts they produce. So it's like you're one step removed in a, in a way. But I think for a creative tool, it's even harder. Like, so I, I'm someone who designs tools for people to build user interfaces, and so I um, there, there's this project called Seven GUIs where there are seven user interfaces, and I just can watch people build those seven interfaces in my tool and and call it and call it a day. But um, when you're building a tool for artistic uh, creative expression, you're, you're building a tool for people to like purposefully break boundaries and do things that have never been done before. so it ha- it's like so it seems really hard to evaluate that sort of a tool.
2: Yeah, it is hard. <laughs> uh, so one of the, the best metrics that I think Mitch and Leah both held up and I've similarly tried to pursue this metric in my work is like you know a system is successful when you see multiple people making things that you didn't know were possible in that system. It's great if, if, if people are able to make complex things or able to easily do the things that you thought the system would be good for, but if someone uses it to then do something you had no idea was possible, then you've succeeded in some way from a creative standpoint. How you design for that <laughs> is not obvious.
0: I think you just designed with a blindfold on you know, so you know, I, I, I couldn't have imagined they did that. You know, I wasn't looking. Yeah,
2: yeah. So Jay Silver has this notion of developing a tool around a project space. So if you develop a tool that's able to create one type of project, then you've got a point. If you know that the tool can create these two types of projects, and you've got a line and you've got a spectrum of projects across that line. If you know a tool is able to create these three types of projects, then you've got a space and you've got a larger area of of possible projects that might emerge within these outer parameters. And he describes this in his dissertation. And I think that's sort of one way of, of approaching both the design and then evaluation, where you set up and a lot of the work that I've done is sort of gravitated towards this, You, you try to choose these targets of the types of expression you think your tool should be good for, but pick them in a way that they are different enough that you're hopeful that there will be some interesting variation in between them. You design for those, you inform that through different processes, looking at what people do while you're building it and so on. And then when you evaluate it, you also think about who am I selecting that corresponds with or diverges from these forms of expression that I've tried to design for, and then looking at what they do and how it aligns with these points you've kind of created versus unknown areas or or points between them. And really trying to look at both what you've set up as, as sort of the types of things you think the system enables making and also what people make with it and how close or how far it is from those things. So that's, One reason that I've also tried to have people use the tools that I've built over a longer period of time is because you get more interesting artifacts out of that and you have more data with regards to the forms of expression that are possible by analyzing those artifacts. It's definitely a qualitative method of evaluation and there's a lot of noise in the data. So there are limitations to it. I recognize that. One thing that I'm trying to move towards is actually scaling up some of these studies. And and so we're working right now on releasing dynamic brushes as a stable app for people to use, although that's a long process so that we can look at more generally, what do people do with this system independent of a formal study or in the wild, quote unquote. And that's really inspired by some work that Leah and Benjamin Mako Hill, who's professor at UW, did with a lily pad where they looked at what people were doing with it over the long-term in actual practice by looking at sales data and work posted to different online communities and doing more of a longitudinal and data-driven approach to analyzing what are the creative affordances of this specific platform. But as I'm always interested in other forms of evaluation but I I think that fundamentally if you're you're designing for creative expression, you need to accept that there are trade-offs in that traditional metrics for evaluation, efficiency, speed, those are great, but they won't work. They won't tell you the whole story here.
0: Yeah, and that was, that was one of my questions. Can, can people use these tools? Exciting to hear that they'll be coming soon.
2: Yeah, so Para might be coming in a different version than, than our original prototype. Dynamic brushes, we've been building it. We're working on another version that has these debugging support features in it. My goal is to get it in the App Store with the, the release of that work. Um, it's another challenge of, of academic research is it's often not incentivized to release your software, as important as that is. So I'm trying to, to find my own strategies for, for doing that. Um, often the paper is the artifact, so.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess this is kind of, uh, dovetails with another question I have. The, 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 um, the uh, interplendous, 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 interplendous. interdisciplinary Interpli...
2: Interdisciplinary?
0: That's the one. <laughs> the interdisciplinary. nope, I'm just going to skip the words. <laughs> the uh, systems engineering yes. uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: method that you did, where you do this need finding research and then you build a tool and you watch people use it, you evaluate it, then you kind of repeat and build a new tool. It feels a little bit rare to me. Like, I didn't think that academia would incentivize this kind of work. It, it seems like a- academia It doesn't seem to support need finding. As much, I'm kind of. I was excited to see that that was like a part of your process.
2: Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, I've been fortunate to work primarily in the field of human-computer interaction, where it's a big enough community with a diversity of thought. So there are definitely people who are, you know, more interested in really quantitative evaluation forms of measurement that are less noisy, (laughs) but there are also huge groups of people who really value tackling messy problems and also approaching it from a human-centered design perspective, which need finding is a a big component. These things take time. Building software takes time. Testing it with people over a longer period of time takes time and resources. Yes, that's not always supported in an academic context, but I'm also encouraged by the fact that there are, you know, increasingly in computer science research, emphasis on things like open source or verified artifacts or, you know, functioning tools as a a contribution and as something that we officially recognize. And so my hope is that there will be more official incentives for doing this work in addition to the, the knowledge gain that we can get from it. And yeah, I'm also excited to see as I continue in my academic career running a lab as opposed to working as a student, what opportunities I'll have for more collaborative forms of production and trying to scale up projects over a longer period of time and with more people involved in them.
0: Mm-hmm. What well, kind of like uh, Scratch, I guess, is like the big example?
2: Scratch, I think, could only happen at the Media Lab. It, it Scratch is a very unique example in that it's basically a small company being run inside a research group. And I think it's unlikely that I would.
0: Could pull that off. Yeah.
2: But yeah, you know, like Mitch has made really good choices in that respect, but he has, you know, made a decision to um, like, he wants to get programming to as many children as possible, which I think is a really laudable goal and, and scratches an approach to doing that. I think I'm maybe more leaning towards one of the benefits of of academia in that you can explore many different directions. And so I, I want to release software and I want to think about building systems that have a lifespan beyond the paper, but there are many ways to do that you know, for example, I've had like great partnerships with Adobe and Industry and I'm I'm really interested in pursuing those going forward. There's trade-offs too to that, but so far that's been a good option for me. And there's also opportunities to contribute to other creative coding communities that are more focused on specifically putting systems out in the world. And so the work that the P5JS and the processing community and also the open frameworks community does is incredibly inspiring and valuable. And I I also think about ways in which, in academia, I might be able to, in computer science academia, make more connections between the work that's being done in the creative coding community and the work that's being done at conferences like CHI and and human-computer interaction research and programming languages research, um, and how there can be an exchange of ideas, but also an exchange of resources in in some respects.
0: Cool. well, uh, I think we have taken enough of your time.
2: <laughs> no, this is great. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoy hashing through these ideas. Um, clearly, I have a lot to continue to hash through, but it's been really fun to talk with you about this.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been great having you. Uh,
2: yeah, uh, definitely love love being connected with with uh, new people thinking about similar ideas, and it's always encouraging to to talk with people who are interested in and value the the notion that programming can be better and that by building different programming languages or different yeah different types of programming we can open it up to new groups and, and new people like that's not always an idea that everyone believes in. So (laughs) it's good to be reminded of it.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, before we sign off, I wanted to give you an opportunity to just list some of those places on the internet where you could be reached in different ways that you wanted to be reached. If you were looking for collaborators or or anything like that.
2: Yeah. Um, so I guess very concretely, if, if any of these ideas are exciting to people, I'm starting up a research group at the university of California, Santa Barbara in July as an assistant professor. And so, um, We are actively looking for people who are interested in potentially pursuing these ideas under a PhD or a master's degree, but also visiting researchers, visiting artists. So if you're excited about this and you're interested in talking more, definitely reach out to me over email, jmjacobs.ucsb.edu. But you can also find me on my website, which is just jenniferjacobs.co. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably the best way to to talk with me. But I'm also on Twitter at J Square.
1: That's it for our show today. Thanks to Steve for having the foresight to interview Jennifer Jacobs. I was actually gearing up to uh, reach out to her and ask her to come on the show myself uh, when I learned that you had already done this. So that was very fortuitous, and I um, I was delighted to hear this interview. There's a not insignificant chance that I will probably at some point ask Jennifer to come back on the show again just so that I can ask her a bunch of questions that occurred to me while listening to this show. That's the real benefit of having a podcast like this is that I get to reach out to all of these interesting thinkers in our field and ask them whatever I want to ask them. And so on that note, if there are people out there that you would like to hear me interview, I have a fairly long list of guests that I've selected already. And so not all of your recommendations will be people that I can eventually bring on. But there are many people who would be a perfect fit for the show that I've never even heard of. And so if there's anybody out there that you know of, and I'm just going to explicitly say uh, extra extra points if they are from an underrepresented group since I am very committed to having this show reflect those principles of inclusion and representation that I spoke to earlier, please tell me who they are so that I can bring them on and share with you all of their wonderful thoughts and visions for the future and wild ideas. The next episode is going to be an interview with Ravi Chung, one of the key figures in the Sketch & Sketch project, which Jennifer mentioned in this interview and which has made waves through our community in the past. Ravi and I had a very long interview. It was something like three hours and 45 minutes. So I'm either going to cut it down significantly or split it into a two-part. So this one might take me a little while yet to finish editing and get out. So if there's a bit of a delay between what you're hearing now and when the next episode is released, that's why. You can find the show notes at futureofcoding.org slash episodes slash forty eight. You can join our Slack community at futureofcoding.org slash community. I'm Ivan Reese, and I will see you in the future.